good morning, Valley Creek. <laughs> My name is Ainsley. I am a freshman at North Harden Christian. Uh, I run cheer. I mean, I run cross country and I do cheer. I'm going to be reading out of Luke 18, 18 through 30. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he, had, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with a man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and follow you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Amen. Amen. You guys give Ainsley a hand. There you go. You guys go to have a seat. And uh, before we get started, let me pray for us this morning, all right? Father, we come to you this morning and uh, just grateful for your word. Grateful uh, that you have brought this group of people here in this place for this moment. Uh, it's not by accident or coincidence that we are here. Uh, it is by your, your design. And so I pray, Father, that for the next few moments as we open your word, uh, that you would help us to receive with uh, joyful hearts, with submissive hearts, and that uh, you would do among us what we cannot do for ourselves. So Lord, uh, convict, comfort, uh, reveal, whatever work you want to do, we ask that you would do it here this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, so Luke 18 is the, uh, the scripture this morning, and uh, that is where we will be. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm thrown off because normally I read first thing and then it's like I did, she just read it for me. So that would be redundant. Um, nothing's ever stopped me from being redundant before though. So anyways, um, earlier this week, um, back up. Some of you may know because I've told you or if you're my wife, you've experienced it. I am easily distracted. Just like squirrel, get distracted, go off on a tangent. And so earlier this week, I found myself distracted by... Uh, I went down this rabbit trail of reading articles about life expectancy and lifespan. I don't know why. I don't know if I'm like, I don't know what was going on. But um, I thought in an effort to redeem the time that like if you, if you just spend the time being distracted, it's wasted. But if I redeem it and use it in a sermon, then it's, I didn't waste that time, right? So I'm going to share some of the things that I learned this week. Okay. Did you know that a recent study indicates that if you switch from a typical American diet to a more traditional Mediterranean diet, 
you can add up to about 10 years to your life. Did you know that? Yeah, see? If, if you learn nothing else today, you guys know you're going to go put woohoos on your lunch plans this week, right? <laughs> I think that's Mediterranean. Maybe not. I may have just misled you. Um, all right, so that, that was good news. On the other hand, um, another study like, found that last year, 2021, the average lifespan for a United States citizen dropped on average, right? Encouraging, right? Uh, it's about two years on average for men, about a year and a half for women. That's, there's a lot of different factors that go into that. Uh, I'll move on because I can see that we are not all encouraged by that. Um, the good news is a study from last year, May of last year, also revealed that researchers, scientists, people smarter than me believe that the human, a human could potentially live up to 150 years old. So there you go. I don't know how they know that. I don't know what you research to determine that. Um, but it was on the internet, so I assume it's true. Um, anyways, I could, I could go on. I, like I said, I wasted a lot of time reading about this stuff. I could give you more, but I won't do that. But here's where I'm going. Is that we are a people that are obsessed with prolonging our lives. right? We're obsessed with this idea of, of trying to make ourselves live longer and live longer. Uh, that's, that's why there's millions of studies about lifespan and um, uh, life expectancy, how your, your dietary habits can affect those. Uh, this is why uh, some men go through midlife crisis. Right? You, you go back, you revert back to this phase where you just spend your money recklessly on things you don't need like you did when you were younger. Right? It's what a midlife crisis is. You're like trying to be young again. Right? And make sure I offend everybody equally here. This is why the cosmetic industry markets the way they do, right? to reverse the effects of, of aging. Right? The, they, they promote this thing that will uh, take away the wrinkles and that kind of stuff. Right? It's, uh, and I'm not knocking it. Like, I mean, look at these things. Like, I would love to get rid of those. I look like a pug. You know what I'm saying? Like, I am, I am too young to have wrinkles like that. But uh, if you don't know what a pug looks like, you can look it up later. Um, here's, I'm sorry. Here's my point. We are obsessed with trying to prolong our lives or, or convince ourselves that we can live forever. And I think the, the reason that is is because like in the deepest parts of our soul, we know that we will live forever. Right? Even if we don't acknowledge it verbally, like there's some people that would just think like we die and that's the end, there's nothing else. Like I think like the, the author of Ecclesiastes says that, that God has put eternity into every human heart. It's like there's something in us that knows we're going to live forever. And so we try and play that out on, on this side of eternity by just prolonging our lives, right? But the reality is, is we're going to live forever. Or as, as C.S. Lewis says in his book, Weight of Glory, he says, there are no ordinary people. Uh, he, he goes on to say, you have never talked to a mere mortal. In other words, every conversation you've ever had, every eye you've ever looked into, everyone in this room, like, we're going to live forever. It's just a matter of where are we going to live forever, right? That's the reality. And so, uh, that is at the heart of the question that this rich young ruler brings to Jesus. Right, he shows up uh, to, to where Jesus is, and, and there's some people there, and, and he asks the question to Jesus, Good teacher, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the heart of his question. He wants to live forever. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And and, and that's an important question. That's a question that that we all should ask or wrestle with, is, is what is required of me to experience eternal life? That's a big question. It's a, it's a weighty question. That's an important question. And uh, Actually, if you've, if you've never wrestled with that question, if you've never pondered that question, uh, I, here, let me just bother your soul a little bit this morning. I used to do this with students, and it would really freak them out. Um, try to wrap your head around how long forever is. And, and I don't mean like just like, oh, yeah, it's a long time. It's forever, duh. I mean like, like actually sit and try to wrap your mind around the length of time that forever is. Isn't that uncomfortable? Like it will, like that's the kind of stuff that will keep you up at night. Right? And, and, and the reason I want you to think about that is because like we're all going to, ex- we're all going to expand that length of time forever. Like we're going to spend it somewhere. And so that's, uh, that's the question that this guy brings to Jesus. And so, um, back to what Jesus says. So he, he responds to the question kind of a little bit of an, an off-putting way. Right? He says, uh, the, the rich ruler says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Which feels like he doesn't really answer the question. Uh, and he doesn't yet, but he's going to. Uh, and, and just real quick, Jesus' response to this ruler is, is his way of trying to lead him to this logical conclusion uh, of, of who he is, of who Jesus is, right? He says, um, and no one's good except God alone. He, he's not saying, Jesus is not saying that he himself is not good, right? He's saying, like, think about this. If you're calling me good, but God alone is good, then what does that say about who I am? And he's trying to lead this guy into this knowledge or understanding of, of, of who Jesus is, right? Because Jesus is God, the Son of God, God wrapped in flesh. He is the, the, the imprint of uh, God's nature. Right? He's the image of the invisible God. That's how the New Testament authors would write it. So, uh, but, but then Jesus transitions quickly. All right, so he kind of just briefly touches on this is who I am. This is who you're bringing this question to. And then he transitions, and he's going to go and do a little bit of like, diagnostic work here. Okay? He's going to give a little like, spiritual EKG on this guy. And he says in uh, verse 20, he's going to assess this ruler's understanding of the law. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And and what Jesus is getting at, he's bringing up, hopefully if you've spent some time in church, you recognize what Jesus is saying here. This is part of the Ten Commandments. We'll get some more of those in just a minute. But what Jesus is doing is just, he's assessing. What is this guy's understanding of the law? Right? And, and, and Jesus is, is doing this, not because like, he doesn't know where this guy stands. It's because he, he's going to draw out from this guy's heart what's really going on like, deep inside of him. Right? Jesus is not running these diagnostic tests for himself to kind of figure out where this guy's at. He, he's asking these questions and he's posing these questions to help this guy understand what's going on inside of him. So he asks uh, these Questions. He asks about the law. What does this guy think about the law? Does he understand that it's good and that it's right? Does he understand that it's, it's worthy? Uh, God, in giving the law, is worthy to be obeyed and, and honored. Right? And, and evidently, this man 
holds the, the law in high regard because he says in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, had this guy really kept all the commandments from his youth? Probably not, right? Uh, I, I have, especially that one about honor your, your father and your mother. Like, I have four young children. I just know that kids don't come out of the womb, like, ready to honor their parents, okay? So I don't think this guy really kept every one of these from uh, his, his youth, but that's not the point. The, the point is that he recognizes, he admits, acknowledges that the, the law is good, that it's worthy to be, to be obeyed. And uh, so, so far, this guy's asking, all right, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, and he's checking all the boxes right. And he, he brings the right question to the right person. Uh, he, he evidently regards God's law as a good thing, worthy to be obeyed and honored and revered. He's, he's strived to keep it, at least for much of his life. Um, so he's, he's headed in the right direction. But before we dig into what Jesus says next, I, wanna, I actually want to jump back to the Ten Commandments. I just referenced those just a second ago. Uh, and if you, you look at the Ten Commandments, uh, they can really kind of be divided into two sort of larger commandments. In fact, Jesus does this, if you're familiar with some of his teachings in the New Testament. You've got uh, the, the first four commands have to do with how we uh, love God. Right? Love God, love others. This is like the whole Ten Commandments wrapped up in, in two commands. Love God, love others. And so uh, the first four, kind of this, this vertical, uh, how we love God. Right? You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Don't worship any sort of created image in the place of God. You don't take God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. All those are like these vertical commands that, uh, that give evidence to how we, we love God. All right, and then you've got this, the last six commands, which is what Jesus just referred to, are sort of the more horizontal, how we, uh, how we love one another, give evidence of our love for one another. So these are uh, what, what Jesus just said. Honor your parents, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, shall not covet. Right, and, and this guy, um, he, he's good at those vertical ones, right? Jesus just uncovered like, hey, what do you think about these commands? And he says, I've kept these from my youth. So in some capacity, he's evidenced, at least by his own profession, like we don't have evidence of the fruit of his life, but by his own uh, estimation, like he's, he's, he's loved others well. Right? He understands what it means to love other people, sort of those horizontal relationships. But then what Jesus does next is he's going to turn this guy's attention to sort of those vertical commands, right? the first four commandments. And, and the, this guy claims to love others, but does he love God? Right? That's where he's directing this guy. And so uh, he, he takes out his, figuratively speaking, Jesus takes out his scalpel, and he's going to do a little, little carving around in this guy's heart to kind of reveal what's going on there. And so um, here's what it says in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So what Jesus does, like masterfully, a skilled surgeon, is he gives this guy essentially one command, and, and with that one command, he reveals what's really going on in this guy's heart. Right? Yes, he's kept the other commands. He, 
He's given evidence of his love for others. But, but at this one command, um, Jesus uncovers the, the thing that's going to keep this rich young ruler from experiencing eternal life. And it's that, it's that instead of uh, wanting to experience like er, or eternal treasures, right, he's, he's given himself over to his earthly treasures. Right, he says he had great wealth, great possessions. And so Jesus says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, to, to let go of those things. And what happens? He says he, he went away sad. Right? And, and to be clear, the problem is not that he had great wealth. The problem is not that he had great possessions. The problem is not that he was uh, extremely rich. That, that, that's not the problem. The problem is that his, his riches and his wealth and his possessions had him. When, when faced with the option to choose, uh, are, you going to, are you going to give yourself to um, these earthly, temporary, transient things? Or are you going to give yourself fully to the eternal God? He chose what was earthly, temporary. Uh, to, to put it in, I think I've said this here before, to put it in maybe some modern language. He chose the stuff of future estate sales, yard sales, and landfills over eternal treasures. Right? He, he was so gripped so tightly onto these earthly temporary possessions that he, he could not let go and grab onto the eternal life that God was going to offer him. Because right? what, what the root of the problem was, again, it's not that he's rich, it's not that he's wealthy. The root of the problem is that he'd broken the first commandment. Remember that one? You shall have no other gods before me. For this rich young ruler, his wealth, his possession, his riches had become his, his functional God, his counterfeit God. Like That's what he was clinging to. That, that was where he, he found his source of security, his source of contentment, his source of hope, his source of meaning was in his stuff. And he wouldn't let go of it. And Jesus knew that. And so that's what Jesus puts before him. He's like, hey, if you really want to inherit eternal life, then here's what you've got to do. Right? You've got to let go of these things. And, and he, he couldn't. And so here's, uh, here's what Jesus does next. He goes on in verse 24. And he's going to leverage this moment as sort of a, a teaching opportunity. And here's what Jesus says, verse 24. It says, Jesus, seeing that this man had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. So as, um, as one who defaults to humor probably more often than I should, um, I love what Jesus does here. He uses a little bit of humor uh, in, in his teaching moment. And he says, like, it's, it's easier for a camel, which was the, the kind of the largest animal in Israel at that time. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why is that? Is it because God is anti-rich people? No. no. Right? God is not anti-rich people. Listen, God is rich. He owns everything. 
right? The, the cattle on a thousand hills, like, like everything that exists in the world, God's like, yeah, that's, that's mine, right? And so God's not anti-rich people uh, at all, but, and this is where context is important, right? Because if you go back earlier in Luke 18 and you read through kind of the two accounts that come right before this, there's a parable about a tax collector and a Pharisee, uh, and then right after that is a, uh, a real quick account about Jesus calling these children unto himself and saying, like, it's to these children that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And the point of those two, uh, those two accounts, the parable and the narrative, are that the, the thing required to enter the kingdom of God, to experience eternal life, is just humility and dependence. Humility and dependence. Right? I, I encourage you this week, go back and read those two accounts earlier in Luke 18. The point is clear that, that eternal life is not given to people who earn their way there, who, who make their way there, who achieve their way there. It's, it's given to people who throw themselves completely and totally on God. Right? People who know that there's nothing in me that could earn or achieve eternal life. And so in, in one sense, like this, this question that, that they ask, that the rich young ruler asks, is what can I do to inherit eternal life? In one sense, the answer to that question is nothing. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Right? You can't earn it. You can't achieve it. You don't work for it. Eternal life is freely given from a good and gracious God to any and all who would turn to him in total dependence. Any who would come to him and say, God, I, I, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't save myself. In humility, I throw myself wholly on you in the gift of, of, of eternal life that you offer only through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection in my place. Right, that's, that's the point here. Jesus' point is he, he's not anti He's not anti-wealthy, he's not anti-rich, but he is, uh, he is saying that humility and dependence on God are required to experience the eternal life that he offers. And the danger, the reason that, that money's elevated here in, in this account is, is that the reality is, is there's a real danger with money or with wealth or with materialism. For, for that to be the thing that we, uh, we lean on, depend on, find our, our security and comfort in, over and above the, the promises of God. It's just, and there's, there's nothing wrong with, with having money. Right? There's nothing wrong with, with being wealthy. Right? I'd, I'd say, man, go get it. If you can get it, go get it. Right? But, but the danger of money is that it, it grips us and it becomes our functional savior. The thing that we look to and depend on and cling to and rely on instead of the God who's promised to sustain his people. Right? And, and what was troubling here is, is this idea went against kind of the, the common thinking of the day, which was uh, in the first century, they're thinking that if you have money, if you have wealth, if you have possessions, it's because God has looked upon you and you have some sort of special favor. And so that's why the people who were there, they, they ask. They're like, if, if this guy... This rich guy who, who probably has some sort of special favor from God, if he can't be saved, then who can be saved? Right? For them, it was, it was hopelessness. But Jesus responds, right? He says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. 
Right? What's impossible with man is possible. Here's Jesus' point. Man is not saved by achieving. It's kind of what I just said. He's not saved by achieving, earning, reaching some sort of status. Right? Man is saved only by throwing himself on the God who graciously gives eternal life through Jesus Christ. Right now, but back to kind of the, the question that the text is going to confront us with today is this. Is, is just as the rich young ruler did not respond with humility and dependence because he was dependent on other things, namely his money, uh, the, the question for us that this text confronts us with is, is what might it be that we are depending on? Right, what are we... Uh, what is it that prevents us from responding to God in humility and dependence? Right, what do we look to as our source of security, comfort? Uh, I mean, we couldn't name any number of things. And so um, that's not the easiest question to answer in our own lives. Right? If I just walk to you like, hey, what's your idol? It's a hard question to answer. Right? Because we have... Uh, limited perspective. Right, we don't always see um, what, what's going on in our own hearts. We don't always have eyes for that. And so uh, what I want to kind of do this morning is, is actually try to do a little self-diagnosis with the help of um, an, an author and a pastor. His name's Tim Keller. He was a pastor for a long time in New York City. And uh, he's, I think I've said this before here, he's kind of like the Yoda of pastoral ministry. Like he's just like, I mean, really brilliant. Like his brain works at a wavelength that I can't even comprehend, right? Um, he doesn't look or sound like Yoda, but he's just brilliant, able to take like these theological concepts and ideas and, and kind of put them, the cookies on the bottom shelf where people like me can understand them. Um, and so actually, fun fact, Kelly and I found ourselves watching a Tim Keller video last night before we went to bed. So if we ever invite you over on a Saturday night, just know what you're getting yourself into, okay? <laughs> Anyways, that wasn't even planned. Here's what Tim Keller says about idols. I'm getting off track. Um, here, here's what Tim Keller writes about identifying the idols in our own lives. He says this, An idol is anything that you turn to and say, save me. Right? Anything that you turn to and say, save me. Anything that you you are dependent on to sustain you, to validate you, to give your life meaning and purpose. Like, that is an idol. And so uh, I thought let's tease that out a bit. Maybe that would be helpful instead of just leaving it there. And so I thought, let me, let me sort of tease out some things. I think it's easy for, for us, and I say us generally, like American culture in the 21st century, Right? Um, some things that, that it's easy for us to turn to and, and, and look to, to to save or validate us. Uh, and, and I thought, I mean, the, the first place to start is just the big three, right? E even people that aren't Christians or believers would say that these three things, like, rule in our culture. And it's, it's money, sex, power. Right? Those are kind of the big three, right? So money, we've, it's kind of what we've talked about for the last few minutes. This was the rich young ruler, right? He... Uh, he believed that, that having wealth, having possessions, right, that, that's what he relied on to save him. 
Right? That's what he, he turned to and, and depended on. That was his, his functional God, his counterfeit God. And so for us, any, any time that we depend on a, a, an amount of money in our bank account, uh, a certain standard of living that we hope to keep, uh, a certain amount that we want to have set aside for retirement to make sure we're taken care of, um, a certain number of, of possessions or type of possessions or wealth, materialism, and all those can become things that, that we like, depend on. Right? I've got to have a certain level of income, a certain, right? And, and, and again, I'm not saying don't go get it. Right? That's not the point. But the point is that um, it becomes an idol when, when that is what you look to to save you, to sustain you, to give you comfort and meaning and fulfillment. Right? Because all that stuff, like we said, is temporary. It's all, listen, you. You ain't taking it with you when you leave. You're not. So enjoy it while you got it, because it ain't going with you. All right, but it, money can become an idol. All right, let's go to uh, the next one. All right, sex. This might be the prevailing idol in our culture right now. All right, they say that every generation has to go through like it's, it's kind of big, big thing, and I think it's no secret that we're going through uh, kind of a sexual revolution right now, if you can call it that. I don't watch the news, and even I know that. Okay, um, here's what I mean. It's it's this idea that that we should be able to express ourselves or or find fulfillment in sex and sexuality, even that goes outside of God's good design, without any sort of judgment or consequence. Right? We we look to those things to validate us. And, and what I'm saying here is this, it's an idol. Right? It's, it's become, to use the language of the, the first command, this little g God. Right? The, the, the American culture right now revolves around what is your sexual identity? Or uh, how do you find fulfillment? I mean, you can't even like turn on the TV without seeing this stuff. Right? It's, it's, a, it's an idol. It's a, a little g God in our culture. Right? The Money, sex, power. Right? This is the kind of the idea that, that only after you reach a certain level of um, power, authority, influence, do you feel confident and secure. Right? This, is, this is why we see so much corruption among leaders and people that are, that are in authority. Because it's always that power grab. I've got to get more of it to feel validated. I've got to get more of it to feel secure. Power comes an idol. Right? And this is nothing new. This has been happening since Genesis 3. Right? The serpent showed up and, to Adam and Eve, and he's like, hey, uh, so here's the deal. If you take the fruit and you eat it, you can become like God. And we've been believing that lie ever since. And so we just search for more power, more authority, more influence. Right? These, are, these are idols. And so those are the big three, but I think a couple others that I... I think maybe you're particularly relevant. Um, ideologies, and that's just an all-encompassing word, so let me break that down a little bit. Um, I said sex was the prevailing idol. Maybe it's actually this one. I don't know. I'm just a pastor. But uh, when I say ideologies, here's what I mean. It's this belief that, that, that the political or social cause that I support 
has to be in power, has to have authority, has to have influence. All right? And if it doesn't, then all of a sudden I don't feel secure, I don't feel confident. Right? It's, yeah, that, that got awkward in here, didn't it? Right? It's this, it's this idea that, that if my uh, preferred political or social cause is not in power, then I freak out and lose my mind like the world's falling in as if God's power and authority doesn't, de- if it, as if his power and authority is dependent on who's in office. Listen, it's not. And when we act like, Amen. when we act like that God is somehow hindered by this political party or this social cause, then all of a sudden, like, we've made this ideology an idol. That was uncomfortable. Let's go on. Listen, I'm talking both sides of the aisle, all right? I'm equal opportunity offender, okay? Relationships. Listen, now, this is probably the easiest one to fall into, right? To make an idol out of our relationships. Um, and what I mean is, is anytime we look to another human being, to give us ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, ultimate joy, ultimate contentment, ultimate security. Right, that's, and that's a recipe for disaster. Right, there is no human being that can bear up under the weight of those expectations that you put on them. That's, that's at the heart of every marital counseling session you'll be at almost. Is one partner put expectations on another partner they could not live up to. And when they didn't meet those expectations, the world came crumbling down. Right? Because, listen, spouses, children, parents, friends are wonderful gifts from God. They are terrible gods. Terrible gods. They are gifts for us to enjoy. But, man, I'm telling you, if you try to find your your ultimate joy, contentment, security, satisfaction in another human being, you're just setting yourself up to be crushed. You just are. So we can make relationships an idol. That's by no means an exhaustive, exhaustive list, right? We could go on and on uh, probably for, for days about the things that we can make uh, idols out of in our lives, even like small, meaningless, trivial things, right? Good grief, sports. I love sports, but how many people act a fool over, over sports? I mean, we could, and those are like trivial things. I get it. And we could go on a while. But my point is that the spirit of, here's, here's my prayer this morning. All week long, I've just prayed that the spirit of God would confront us in the same way that Jesus confronted this rich young ruler. That he would do some sort of uh, precise surgery and just reveal to us the things that we've elevated over and above God in our lives, the things that we hold on to so tightly that if we were presented with the option of, all right, you've got to let go of that thing in order to follow God, that we would be like, I don't know if I can let go of it or not. I don't know if I can let go of it. Right? That's been my prayer this week, is that the Lord would just bring those things to our mind and, and confront us with those so that we might confess, that we might repent, and that we might uh, lay the things aside that keep us from following Jesus more consistently, more faithfully, with greater humility and greater dependence on him. All right, so would you pray with me?
So we ask the Spirit to do that this morning. Father, we come to you and uh, we just acknowledge that what's impossible for us to save ourselves, to free ourselves from uh, the idols that we might be enslaved to, what's impossible for us is possible with you. And so for those of us this morning that are striving to follow you more faithfully, would you just reveal to us, whether it's in this moment or as we go on our way this week, would you reveal to us what it is that we're holding on to, relying on, depending on, uh, as our functional God? This thing that we look to um, for our, our comfort, this thing that we look to for our, uh, our source of security, this thing that we're prone to, to elevate to a position that you alone deserve as the sovereign God creator of the universe. Father, help us to, to see the ways in which we've leaned on counterfeit gods that ultimately in the end offer us no lasting hope beyond this world. So Father, I, I pray that, that as you reveal, as you convict, as you uh, Lord, bring these things to mind, I, I also pray that, that we would have an awareness of your grace and your mercy your, your, your kindness and compassion extended to us and that that would lead us to repent, to turn from those things, to turn to you and to throw ourselves uh, on you with greater dependence, greater humility. Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.